on. Um, I know we're running a bit late this morning, but um, I've just been so encouraged with all of the words and the worship, um, and I, I really feel that God's got something special for us. So hang in there. Um, I think it's going to be worth it. Um, sure, I, I just want to pray quickly. Um, Father, I ask that by your spirit you would come, that you would reveal Jesus to us this morning. I pray that any words that are not of you would fall to the ground and be blown away like chaff, but anything that you desire to be planted deep within us, Lord, that you would water and that you would bring to fruition in Jesus' name. Right, so let, me, let me ask you something. If I had to ask you what your picture was of the ideal man, man's man, what comes to mind? You know, Dave, Dave mentioned, I think two weeks ago, about the Marlborough man or the camel man. Um, you know, what about Indiana Jones or Clint Eastwood? Um, I don't really think of any modern day. They don't sort of make men like they used to. <laughs> hey, Dave? <laughs> you know, any, anyone under sort of 25 won't know any of those names that I've just mentioned. Um, you know, wives and kids, this is where you need to look at your husband and go, I'm thinking about you, Dad. <laughs> or um, what about Chuck Norris, you know? Chuck, Chuck Norris doesn't breathe. He holds, he holds air hostage, <laughs> you know? Um, there's actually no theory of evolution, just a list of animals and creatures that Chuck Norris allows to live. You know, when Chuck Norris was in junior school, his uh, English teacher gave him an essay topic, What is Courage? He got an A-plus just for handing in a blank page with his name on the top. <laughs> so so um, for me, it would be Bear Grylls if I had to choose someone. You know, Bear Grylls just seems to be like the ultimate man. He's always off on some adventure in the wild, you know, living off the land. Um, but, I mean, what does someone like Bear Grylls need? You know, what is his weapon of choice? You know, and, um, yep. Eh? Leatherman. You know? I, I've, I've always wanted a Leatherman. And uh, after a series of some serious DIY at work, I thought, well, l let me get one. You know, and... You know, when you, when you wield, you don't just use a Leatherman, you wield it. <laughs> you know, it's like when it comes out of its sheath, it's like Excalibur. You know, and there's, there's this heavenly light and angelic singing, you know, as it, as it comes out. You know, Dave, you know the feeling. You know? Yeah, you know, I've seen you walking around with, you know, with your, with your Leatherman. So what does a Leatherman and the Bible have in common? Well, you're going to have to stay awake to find out. So, um, I get a bit nervous when I get asked to preach because every time I come up here, I land up confessing something about my, my walk and what I'm not doing well in. And this morning's no exception. So, um, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you guys. And um, I think it's okay because if we can't be vulnerable from up here, then we can't expect any vulnerability from the congregation. 
So um, I'm going to share with you what I've only shared with my wife and with my discipleship group, and there's some, some of them here today to support me. But, um, you know, in, in this preparation, there's been a, a weight and a heaviness, um, not out of a burden, but out of a concern that what God's taken me through over the last while, I don't think is just for me. And I think that I'm up here with a purpose this morning. And I think as the, as the message unfolds, all of the words that have come through will confirm, you know, what I want to share. So the last few years, I've been through a bit of a, a midlife crisis. Um, I've started questioning my vocation, my meaning in life, fortunately not my marriage. Um, that's the only thing that's been stable. Um, so I did what every well-intentioned Christian should do, and I turned to the Bible. Um, what followed was a year of the School of Leadership and Theology with Vineyard, which I highly recommend. Um, many, many hours of journaling and prayer, dozens of biblical commentaries and reading, um, working through three books of the Bible, one of them twice, two 40-day fasts, not the full ones, but enough to, to hurt. Um, and to top it off, our discipleship group has spent over a year working through Gordon MacDonald's book, Ordering Your Private World. So for those of you that don't know, it's a book about how we need to make sure that our private world is in order, that it's strong, so that when the trials of life come, um, we're strong enough to be able to handle it. You know what happened? After thinking that I was pretty well intellectually, emotionally, theologically equipped, um, the storm hit and I fell apart. Um, my, my world collapsed and the private world that Gordon told me I should have in order just disintegrated in a sea of stress and work pressure and exhaustion. Um, it took me two to three months to get myself right. You know, I couldn't pray, didn't want to read the Bible, didn't, coming to church, community group was, was a struggle. Um, so what I share with you now is not me preaching at you, but me, pre me sharing with you. Um, what I've learned these past few months. So, so let's get back to, to our Leatherman. So I can stand up here and I can tell you that the Leatherman was invented by Tim Leatherman in 1975, that it took him three years to develop his first prototype, that it took him another three years for it to go into production, that there's a Leatherman for nearly every single situation you can find yourself in, for every field of occupation and vocation, that it comes with a 25-year guarantee. <laughs> and I can stand here and I can explain to you about every single one of these wonderful tools and read to you testimonies on the Leatherman website about how they've saved people and changed their lives. I can polish it and I can admire it and I can wield it and, and examine it. 
But you know what? That's exactly the wrong way to use a Leatherman. You know, it was designed for a purpose. The designer spent many, many hours and days and months and years developing for a purpose to be used. You know, the greatest compliment that you can give to a Leatherman is not to keep it shiny and new, to have it in a drawer and take it out and admire it every now and again. The greatest compliment you can give to a Leatherman is to use it for the purpose that it was made. It's going to be nicked, it's going to be scratched, it's going to be dented, but that's how it's supposed to be. So why am I telling you this? Because over the last few years, I've learned the very hard way that the Bible too was designed for a purpose, to reveal Jesus. And I have emblazoned on my heart now that intimacy triumphs information every time. So, you see, I was reading up and I was studying and I was polishing the Bible, but I wasn't using it for the purpose that it was meant to be used, to reveal the Word, the Son of God. So, that's the title of this morning's message, is The Word Reveals the Word. So if we read in John 1, and you guys will all know this passage, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's a very well-known passage, and we're going to use it as a springboard this morning to look at how the written Word of God reveals the living Word of God. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at why the Word reveals the Word, how the Word reveals the Word, and how we should respond to the Word. So just to clarify, in verse 14 of John 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. So the word is Jesus, who is God, just so that we're all on the same page. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you've got them, to Colossians 1. We're going to look at verse 15 to 20 this morning, and we're going to camp out here for a bit. So, it should be on the screen. Let's read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. What an amazing scripture. We see the majesty of Christ displayed in all of his glory here. So let's look at why the word reveals the word. Verse 1 and 19, he is the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Everything that was God was in Jesus. Jesus is the great revealer of the Father. He tells the disciples in John 14.9 when Philip asks him to show us the Father, he says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whatever has, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 16, he is the creator of all things. And everything was created for him. And if any of you have noticed the congruency between John 1 and Genesis 1, apart from the fact that they both start from within the beginning, but Jesus is described as the word of God in John 1, and in Genesis 1, God spoke. So he must have spoken a word. So Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 17, he is the sustainer of the cosmos, and in all things are held together. He is the one that holds everything together. Verse 18, he is preeminent. He is first, above all, supreme. He's the head of the church, the firstborn from among the dead. And we have eternal life because he was raised from death. The preeminence of Christ is at the heart of God's eternal plan. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Verse 20, he is the Redeemer and the Reconciler. Through the blood of his cross, he has reconciled us to the Father and redeemed us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is to be praised and adored and worshipped and loved for all of these things, but also because he is Lord over all. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's worshipped not only by man, but by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Revelations 5:11 to 14 reads, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Charles Spurgeon describes the magnificence of Christ like this. He says, You and I cannot have two lofty thoughts of Jesus. We err in not thinking enough of him. 
Let our estimate of him grow and let us cry with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Oh, for great thoughts of Jesus. Oh, to set him on the highest imaginable throne in the conceptions of our soul and to make every power and faculty of our manhood fall prostrate like the elders before him. While whatever honor God may put upon us, we cast always at his feet and ever say with heart and lip and act, Thou art worthy, Jesus, Emmanuel, Redeemer, who has purchased us by thy blood. Worthy are thou, worthy forever and ever. Spurgeon goes on to say that the key purposes of God is Christ. He says he is the great interpreter to us of the mind of God. His spirit dwelling in us takes of all his things and shows them unto us. And in the light of the spirit, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why does the word reveal the word? Quite simply because he's God. He is God become man to reveal the heart of the father. He is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to redeem us by the blood of the cross and to reconcile us to the Father for eternity. He is the revelation of God and there is no other revelation or inspiration or anticipation of the revelation of God other than Jesus. So how does the word reveal the word? The kingdom of God, his dynamic rule and reign on the earth, the way he exhibits his glory is the golden thread woven through the entire Bible. God's plan has always been to make his dwelling with man, to partner with him, with us, to establish and expand his kingdom through all the earth. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was and is central to this kingdom. Jesus is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. He's promised in Genesis, in verse 3, to crush the serpent's head. And he's revealed in Revelation 19, verse 11 to 13, as the returning triumphant king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness... He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Luke writes this in chapter 24 of the gospel, of his gospel, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and the two disciples are downcast after his resurrection. And he says to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus revealed to them that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was actually about him. Everything pointed to him. The hope and the faith that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Isaiah, that all of them had, was all placed in Jesus. 
They looked forward to the cross. We look back. Jesus was not just a promise or a pattern in the Old Testament, but he was present. He was the I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, John 8. He was the motivation for Moses to leave Egypt in Hebrews 11. He was the redeemer who brought his people out of Egypt in Jude 5. He was the king of Isaiah's temple vision in John 12. The angel of the Lord that appeared so many times in the Old Testament to Abraham, to Joshua, was Jesus. Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, When we read of God appearing after the fall in some visible form, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it as the second person of the Trinity. Tim Keller has a, has a fantastic video series out at the moment called Discovering the Gospel in Every Book of the Bible. And uh, I'd really encourage you to, to watch it. You see, the gospel, the Bible's all about the gospel. It's all about the good news of God's love for us and our salvation. But let's just consider what the gospel is and how Jesus fits into it. So the gospel is essentially creation, all, redemption, restoration. So if we have a look at creation that we read in Colossians 1 and in John 1, that Jesus is the word that was spoken in creation, that he is our creator and all things were made through him. He also sustains all creation in that all things hold together in him. In the fall Jesus is promised as the Savior in Genesis 3.15. He is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. God promises salvation through his Son. In redemption, Jesus is the one to redeem us as he steps out of eternity into human history to reconcile us to the Father through his life, death, and resurrection. In him, the fullness of God dwells. And by his cross, we are saved and united with God. Colossians 1.20, as we read, says, He reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Finally, restoration. Jesus is the one to restore creation back to its original form. We read in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Charles Spurgeon says, Glory be to God for such a gospel as this, to think that a soul condemned and lost by nature 
should be made completely clean through the purging of the great atoning sacrifice of our dear Lord and Master. So to sum up this point, I can't do it any better than Glenn Scrivener. He says, what straddles the Old and New Testament is not simply a plan or a promise, but a person. Jesus unites the Bible. He's not absent from the Old Testament, sitting on the bench, awaiting his fourth quarter winning play. He is the player, the coach, the manager, directing all things. Throughout the Old Testament, he is the one and only mediator of God Most High marching purposefully towards his own incarnation. Jesus is Lord. He always has been. So how should we respond to the word? And this is where things get very personal for me. And I hope I don't offend anyone here as I share my feelings. But um, I know that most of you here have got this Christian thing down pat. But uh, I guess I'm a bit of a slow learner. Um, I came across an article this week, it was written this week on the 6th of March um, by Greg Morse who writes for John Piper's Desiring God website. And um, it just sums up how I've been feeling, um, especially in light of how I shared about how my year ended. You know, I said to my wife during that time that I felt like Adam um, after the fall, that I was hiding from God. Um, so, Greg Morse writes this. He says, Am I in danger of losing Christ in my Christianity? Among those of us who truly know Jesus, who love him, believe upon him for eternal life, have we lost our first love? Does the greater light now shine as the lesser in our hearts. Has he traveled unnoticed from his place as the great object of our souls to an adjective modifying our pursuits? I have busied myself with good and even godly pursuits. Those that are from him, to him, and through him, but are not him. To my surprise, I realized I began to lose Christ of all places in my Christianity. And losing sight of him here seems, seems subtler and easier. Our Christian walk, our journey of sanctification should never take precedence over Jesus. We should guard ourselves against godly pursuits and practices that place Christianity above and before Christ. Our faith should be strengthened by doctrine, by theology, by Christian practices like prayer and worship and study, but they should never be built on them. The only firm foundation, the only true rock of our faith should be Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in John 5.39 when he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The word of God, the Bible, is meant to reveal the word of God, the Son. 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our, pa- of our faith, the person in whom the very fullness of God dwells. Now here's where things start to get a bit uncomfortable. Perhaps some of you, like me, have, through study or service or prayer or worship, thought that you could have eternal life like the Pharisees. In my very well-intentioned endeavors to seek God to know his will for my life, to find peace through the trials and tribulations, I I searched the scriptures thoroughly because I thought that in them I would find eternal life. I would find the answers. You see, I substituted the written word of God for the living word of God. And when the storms had settled and the dust cleared, I found that my my house was not built on the rock of Christ. It was built on the sands of my own very well-intentioned religious endeavors. We said that the Bible is about the gospel, about the good news of God's redemptive plan for man, of his establishment of his kingdom on earth. But the gospel is not a religious doctrine or a theology to study. It's a person to get to know, to love and to serve with our whole hearts. So how do we respond to the word? We come to Jesus. We fall at his feet and we cry like the elders, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. who has reconciled man to God by his cross. Theology is not going to save us. Worship's not going to change us. Prayer's not going to have any purpose. Unless Jesus is the delight of our hearts and the priority of our lives. So let me ask you like I asked myself. your soul troubled? Are you downcast, feeling that your prayers are empty and that your love for the Lord is diminished? Do you feel that life's too hard and the storms of this life are overwhelming you? And come to Jesus. Examine your hearts. Examine your actions. In Luke 10, when Martha was complaining to Jesus that Mary was doing nothing but just sitting at his feet, Jesus responded to her and he said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Does that sound familiar? But few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken for you from her. So be like Mary. Come and sit at his feet this morning. We're going we're gonna to listen to a song, and we're going to close this morning. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to do only one thing. To do the only thing that he needs to do, and that's to reveal Jesus. So... We're going to listen to the song, and I'd invite you to sit, to kneel, to, to do whatever you want to do. 
but I've felt such a weight both personally and corporately for this message this morning and it's been confirmed through the worship, through, through all of the words that have been brought and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit would, would come and have his way this morning. So the lyrics go like this. They say, if my heart could tell a story, if my song would sing a song, if my life would sing a song, if I have a testimony, if I have anything at all, that no one ever cared for me like Jesus, his faithful hand has held me all this way. And when I'm old and gray and all my days are numbered on this earth, let it be known that in you alone my joy was found. Let my children tell their children, let this be, my mem- let this be their memory, that all my treasure was in heaven and you were everything to me. So just close your eyes and Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now, Lord. We ask you to come and to reveal Jesus. We ask you to come and to touch lives this morning.